A quick hello to the show. Welcome, Diana. <laughs> I managed to forget the words to that incredibly simple song. I don't know what happened. My brain suddenly froze halfway through, but I got through it anyway. Welcome, Diana. We're going to be talking about building a B2B demand generation engine for high growth. Yes. And I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds really exciting, especially for me, because Caddycube is B2B. We're trying to grow. And demand generation is something we haven't yet mastered. So I'm hoping you will teach us, but also the audience how to do that. But before we look into that, let's have a look at your brand, sir. Here's your name. Uh, nothing incredibly interesting here. If it's not that, you're at the top with what I believe is a relatively uncommon name, but you don't have your own website. No, not, not a dianashimoda.com for sure. And I'm actually surprised, Jason, looking at this, like when I Google myself here in the US, I get a much different view than you do. It's, it's a lot more robust with pictures and video clips and all kinds of oh. stuff. Ah, now, there's an interesting point because I searched in the UK. So in the UK, the content that you're creating is less relevant. So Google doesn't have the need to be quite so adventurous with the content it shows. So as long as your clientele isn't in the UK, you're absolutely fine. And I'm making a mistaken criticism. And here is your company. And even in the UK, your Google business profile appears. Yeah, and that's actually not my company. Um, oh, I just—that's no. somebody that copied our name that started probably five, six years after us. So, I interestingly, I was just a podcast guest for someone else, and they posted on LinkedIn, and they linked to that one, <gasps> and they were a U.S.-based company, and I'm like, "Ooh, that's not my company." <laughs> right, and that's a huge problem with the ambiguity of a name, but it also demonstrates the importance of geolocation for the search, yeah. is that if I'd search in the US, it would be your company. In the UK, it's that one, because your company name will be protected by companies' registries. Right, so there yep. Is, yep, yeah, yep, my name's trademarked, my company name, Growth Mode Marketing. But after I saw that, I looked it up, I'm like, does this apply to other countries? And it doesn't. So, you know, they, they stole their name, but... We're not in the UK, so it's okay, too. Right. Yeah, no, it's hugely complicated and hugely expensive. If I register in Europe, I can cover all of the European countries. I then have to also register in the US and in the yeah. UK separately. And then you've got Australia and all the <laughs> other countries, and you kind of think, oh, can I do it? And unless you're somebody like Google or a huge major, huge, huge major corporation, uh, it's really difficult to bear the expense. Right. And is it even like going to benefit you? Yeah, true, true. <laughs> you are listening to Branded Search and Beyond with Jason Barnard. Now, back to the show. <laughs> but that wasn't the topic today. The topic today was uh, demand generation. Now, when you talk about high growth, yeah. you're talking about driving high growth through demand generation. So there are multiple things we need to unpack before we really get into the meat and potatoes, as it were. What do you mean by high growth? And what do you mean by demand generation? Yeah, so starting with the first one, talking about high growth. You know, a lot of organizations say they want to grow, but, you know, 
my company tends to work with organizations that are between, and I'm talking U.S. dollars here, so I apologize, uh, 10 million in annual revenue to say 100 million in annual revenue typically. And a lot of times those are organizations that are private equity backed. They've got an infusion of cash. When you're private equity backed, everybody knows if they're giving you money, their goal is to grow you rapidly to either take the company public or to sell it, you know, to get profit out of it, right? So that's when we talk about high growth. A lot of times these companies say they start at 10 million. They may have an expectation that they're going to get to 50 million in five years, which is very aggressive for most organizations. So that's what we look at as high growth. And that's really a long-term game. And that's where demand generation comes into play. And Sorry, just, excuse me, coming almost back one step is the high growth is you said a long-term game what i was hearing was it's a short-term game for equity-backed companies to prove their value and then you said it's a long-term game yeah well well it depends how you define short-term and long-term yes Ah, to grow from five million to 50 million in five years feels like short-term when you're doing marketing and sales is measured on a monthly basis, quarterly basis. Okay. That's a short game. And when I look at marketing, you know, the long game for us is okay, five years, we've got to achieve high growth. The reality okay. is only 5% of your total addressable market or your ideal customer profile is in market to buy at any given time. 95% of those companies oh. are not. Now, on a year, and we were talking about this before we hit record, you know, with the economy in the different countries and, you know, how they're doing, in a year when the economy is down, which it is in the U.S., that number goes down. There are even less companies that are out there buying right now. So that 5% is probably more like 1%. Oh, that low. Yeah, because everybody's pulling back, they're not spending as much, they're trying to tighten their budgets to get through the economic uncertainties. Right, now I understand why everyone's so worried. Um, But if we're talking about a normal period of time of 5% per year, Mm -hmm. then we've got 25% of your total market market are going to be there looking for the product at some point in the next five years, and you're not going to get the the whole lot. Yeah, you're not going to get the whole market, right? And so going back to the what is demand generation, I I think to understand that we need to talk about like lead generation versus demand generation, because I think a lot of marketers still consider lead generation and demand generation to essentially be the same thing. And they're not, they're very different strategies. Lead generation is really like your marketing programs are focused on that 5% of companies that are currently in market. You're trying to capture those companies. You're asking prospects for a meeting and you're trying to pull them into your sales process. So if you think about it, like if you're putting, you know, research reports out there by like Gartner or Forrester that you paid to have created and you're putting a form in front of it, you're gating it. Historically, as marketers, what we would do is we would collect that contact information, we'd pass it to an SDR team or the sales rep, they would follow up with them and the chase begins, right? Right, okay. Well, in reality, just because someone is interested in looking at your content does not mean they're in market. So there's a lot of 
wasted resources and time, which costs a lot of money Mm -hmm. to chase after leads that aren't actually leads right now. And so that's where demand generation comes into play, because what you're doing is you're creating a marketing strategy that is focusing on driving value, not just for the 5% of companies that are currently in market, but also for the 95% that are not looking to buy right now. So your marketing programs are focused on not just capturing demand, but also how do you create demand in the market? Because you want to build brand awareness and trust so that when they are in market, they know who you are and you make the short list. And so prospects start asking you for a meeting and they're inviting you into the buying process. And this is really, really important because the way that B2B prospects buy has changed and evolved, especially in the last few years. And research coming out of Forrester, research coming out of Gartner, and what we're seeing in the market with the clients that we work with is that up to 80% of that purchase decision process is being made before they're willing to engage with a sales rep. So if you stop and think about that, your digital footprint needs to become your best salesperson. Ooh, no, right, okay. So this this is really starting to to please me because the digital (laughs) footprint is what CaliCube is all about. We're all about cleaning your digital footprint, making sure that you're consistent across every single platform, across the digital universe, so that when you are present in front of the future prospects who are not yet demanders of your services, you're front of mind when they actually get there because you've been in front of them consistently across the entire digital universe. Right. And and quite frankly, if they're 80% through that purchase decision process before they engage with a sales rep, they've already got a short list. You don't Mm -hmm. make the short list you don't get to have that conversation with them. I think it's it's rare these days that someone comes in at the ninth hour and manages to, you know, push aside the options they've already been researching and exploring and digging mm. into because they've likely already kind of determined like it's either going to be this company or this company or it's going to be this company. I just need to go through the process of vetting it out and pricing it and all those things. Right. So, for example, aiming on a Google Ads campaign for the money keywords or aiming an SEO campaign at the money keywords, you would suggest is pointless or not incredibly smart use of your time and money? I think it depends. Um, I, I think many companies spend more on digital advertising than they probably should be for the ROI right. that they get back from it. The reason being like a lot of those campaigns are designed, you know, like when companies like we need leads, we need them now. What's the best way to find people that are in market? I know let's have a, some Google ads out there. Mm. So you assume people click on them, they're in market to buy. Not necessarily. And um, when you go back and you look at how companies are performing, if you really dig into the digital advertising, a lot of times it's a significant amount of spend, very long sales cycles, and very low close rates. So you may be getting a lot of leads out of it, but they're not quality leads. And quality needs to trump quantity because as marketers, I think we've, we've made the mistake because we were backed into a corner, we have to prove ROI, we have to show that Mm. we're bringing leads in the door. That quantity became the metric that seemed to matter 
And at the end of the day, if you're not closing business, it doesn't matter how many leads you have, right? And and that's a really interesting point about the metrics we use. I mean, I started in the internet in 1998 when banner ads were still popular. And people were saying, you get 2% click rate. And they sold everything on the 2% click rate. And as soon as people got used to the banner ads, the, the click rate dropped down. Yeah. And they shot themselves in the foot because then they couldn't sell for very much money. And they were trying to sell something else as a metric. And in SEO, we've had the same problem with traffic. And at the end of the day, we should always be selling on revenue and figuring out how to map our marketing efforts to the revenue it generates. Right. And I think where digital ads can come into play, you know, if you're trying to capture in-market demand, you need to find the buyers that actually have some demonstrated buying intent. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, if you have a really good website and you have a really good digital footprint, like content that is out there and they're looking at things that might demonstrate there's some level of buying intent. So let's say they come to your website and they're looking at all your case studies and they're looking at the product information and they're looking at the pricing page. Great. Do a retargeting ads to them to get your brand in front of them. Don't put gates on those ads on the landing pages. Like just keep getting the content in front of them for that kind of brand awareness, following them and, Ultimately, you want them to continue to consume the content that you've got because the more they consume, the more it's building that trust factor so that if they are actually in market, they're more likely to reach out and engage with that sales team. Right. Yeah. And I, somebody told me seven hours. People need to spend seven hours with a brand in order to actually be interested in doing business with them. I'm not sure where the seven hours came from, but <laughs> that includes the reading, the watching the videos, spending time with you on a call, reading your emails, all of that contributes to the seven hours. But the seven hours is when people are at ease and are more, most likely to trust you. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense. And I, yeah, that's the first time I've heard the seven hours. But I've also seen statistics out of Gartner that said it now takes 66 brand touches mm. that they see and actually <laughs> acknowledge for them to start to even like know your brand exists. That's a lot. Right. Yeah, I was talking to somebody a few years ago and we were talking about, is it seven, is it 21 or is it 50? And she was talking about, I think it was, we see 1,500 brands a day. Uh, so crazy. at that point you realize how much we're in overload and we don't really know what we're looking at. And we can't retain it. Uh, and this, specifically, let's talk about the B2B messy funnel. That's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's really messy, you don't know who's actually researching, it might be the assistant, and then the CEO gets on board once the assistant has done the research. So the assistant is critical in terms of the research, but the CEO is critical in terms of the sale. How can yeah. you deal with that kind of problem? Yeah, so that's where I go back to, you know, when I look at demand generation, the way that we talk about it at Growth Mode Marketing is you really have to build out your digital footprint. Mm -hmm. so that people can find you. But to build that demand generation engine and to know like it's messy, first you need to define who's your ideal customer profile. Ooh. And those are best fit companies. And you know, to clarify, because not everyone understands this, an ideal customer profile is different than a buyer persona. An ideal customer profile is the type of companies that are most likely to be a great fit for your organization. And a mistake that many companies make, and I see this in the tech space all the time, when it's like, who is the best customer for your technology solution? They're like, well, 
you know, when we work in the HR tech space a lot, they're like, anybody that has employees, <laughs> like, okay, so you're trying to be everything to everyone in a market where there are over 21,000 HR technologies all competing for that HR budget. You're not going to stand out in the crowd. You're going to blend in with a sea of sameness. And they're like, oh, but we have differentiators. Okay, tell me about your differentiators. Well, we have amazing customer service. We have these stellar integration capabilities. You know, the list goes on and on. And it's like, those are table stakes. Those are things that prospects and customers expect from you. And anybody can say that. Like, those are not differentiators. So the other piece of building a demand generation engine from a strategy standpoint is if you don't have true and meaningful differentiators in the eyes of the buyer, you need to come up with a unique point of view and build out a story that helps challenge thinking by talking about things differently than others. And just to use a very like basic example of using an ideal customer profile and a unique point of view, let's say you are an HR tech company that's selling a recruitment management system. There are hundreds, if not thousands of recruitment management systems out there. And let's say just 20 of those vendors are marketing to me. If I work in a manufacturing company and they all sound the same, I'm probably going to price shop, right? Or whoever Hmm. from a sales rep, I like the best. If there is one company that comes to me and they're positioning it as we work with companies who recruit in manufacturing. We understand the unique needs that you have because we know you have shift differentials. We know you have high turnover. We know that it involves a lot of training and it's very expensive to replace people because of the technical aspects of the machinery that they're gonna be operating. If you talk in their language, and everyone else is talking to everyone, guess which one they're going to feel like they get me. They understand Mm -hmm. me. And so getting very hyper-focused from an ideal customer profile and a unique point of view standpoint will help you stand out in the crowd. And so narrowing your audience and narrowing your story, which scares a lot of companies, will actually help you get more Mm -hmm. traction. Right. I mean, that was what I was going to say is it's it's hugely scary thinking I'm going to niche down. How do you convince a company (laughs) to actually do it? Uh, You know, it's it is scary and it's it's hard to do not in the sense that, oh, it's hard to to figure out how to narrow down. It's it's scary, I think, in the sense that it's like, but I'm putting less fishing lines in the water. I'm going to catch less fish. And now I'm turning down prospects that I wouldn't have turned down in the past. And one, you know, we tell our clients, you are not saying I will never work with these other companies again. You can Mm -hmm. still take on these other companies. But what you are saying is from a marketing strategy standpoint, we're going to focus and get really good at talking to this audience because we're going to get more traction. And how do you get them to choose which audience to focus on? Because they've got 15 fishing mm-hmm. lines and you're saying, let's just pick one. Yep. Yeah. What, what are the steps there? Yeah. Well, when we are working with clients to help them define their ideal customer profile, what we will do is look at their existing customer base 
their historical data and yeah. try to pull all the data in to understand and this is easier said than done only because a lot of times they don't have the data that we want them to have to be able to do it. But ideally, you're looking at it, okay, which clients are most profitable? What industries are they in? What factors are in their organization? What does their organizational structure look like? Who are the buyers? Which clients are easiest to work with? Which ones have the most customer support? people on it, you know, that's a factor into profitability because a lot of times what will happen is an organization will be like, well, we work with Delta and they are our biggest client. So we need more of them. <laughs> but, you know, then we talk to their teams internally and we're like, tell us which clients you love working with and why. Tell us which clients are most complex to work with and why, you know, and you yeah. find out like the Delta, which they have the most revenue, also has three times more employees working on it to support it. They're constantly frustrated. The team's mm -hmm. panicked about it all the time. It's like, okay, that's not your ideal customer profile. You're actually doing better with this these type of companies that are the middle here, that are this industry, mm -hmm. that there's an opportunity. But we also look at the market and we figure out like, if you're an HR technology company, for example, is anyone else positioning to this particular audience? And if they are, how are they doing it? And if we see an opportunity there, you know, like I could use my own personal agency as an example. Like when we decided we're going to start niching down, again, it doesn't mean this is only who we work with, but from a marketing perspective, we're marketing to HR technology companies that have high growth initiatives. We did that because when we look at all the agencies out there, there are thousands, if not more right. agencies in this world, right? Like what we're doing is not necessarily unique per se in the buyer's eyes, but nobody except for one other agency was specifically going after HR technology and they weren't doing it from a demand generation standpoint. Right. So we found so, an opportunity. No, brilliant. Yeah. And my, my question then is I always kind of assumed that if an HR company technology company sees that you're working for 15 other mm -hmm. HR technology companies. They think, well, they know all my secrets. They're going to help the other companies and they're my competitors. How, how is that not a problem? Well, and I, I think that's a fair question to ask Jason, because that question does come up. And we even, we even questioned that ourselves when we decided we were going into that niche. But, uh, you know, we talked to other agencies that were, doing the same thing, you know, because it's one thing if you're, if you're selling like HR technology, it doesn't matter if you're working with competitors, because you're not sharing like secrets. If you're doing marketing, like, I don't want you to market the same way for me that you market for them that you market for them, because we're all competing against each other. Right. And I don't want you to know their secrets and share them. Well, I want you to share them with me, but I don't want you to share my secrets with them. Right. It turned out to be a non-issue. And I, I have an oh, okay. agency owner friend who said, when you have two clients in an industry, it's competition. When you have more than two clients in an industry, it's called expertise and they pay a premium for it. Right. And, and yeah. the reality is like for us, what we see, because I think this is a, a real factor for some organizations to think about, is how do you make sure you're not working on direct competitors? And we really don't have that issue because from an HR technology standpoint, there's so many different types of mm -hmm. HR technology. 
And so we're working with different types. They sell to the same people, but they're not selling the same thing. And even when they are selling the same thing, we're usually not working on the same type of projects for them. So one Mm -hmm. might be like, we're doing a bunch of media placement to help them build out their digital footprint. And the other one is we're working on sales tools, you know, so they're, and we put different teams on them too, just, you know. Right. No, from, from, a, from, our, from our perspective at CaddyCube, we're looking at niching down, thinking about it, but it's a scary prospect. And that was one of the worries that I had. Um, but what we also see, is you're, as you're saying, who are the most valuable clients to us? And I'm realizing as time goes by that the most valuable clients to CaddyCube are the PR agencies mm-hmm. using CaddyCube Pro to drive their digital department their digital pr department so i think i'm going to more and more niche down on that but that's incredibly recent and you've really helped that focalize that in my head it focalizes a real word so the last question of the day is that one which is my favorite question because it's all about branded search and this podcast is called branded search and beyond with jason (laughs) barnard so how does branded search help with b2b demand generation Yeah, so I I think it actually plays a big role in demand generation because going back to that, your digital footprint needs to become your best sales rep. What I mean by that is people are doing so much research online. They're learning about companies on their own time. They're digging in and learning more before they come to those vendors, which means you've got to be easy to find. You've got to have content out there. And from a you know branded search perspective, when we look at demand generation, we build it out for our clients. There's three pillars. There's the strategy, there's the content, and there's the distribution. With the distribution, there's kind of three areas to look at to build out your digital footprint. Obviously, your website, that's your digital storefront. How do you make sure that that content's really good there? I think most companies at bare minimum have a website. Now, not everyone does a really good job of making that a tool where someone can really go deep. But that's usually like the first thing that it's like, check, we, we at least have started there. The other two areas to look at are managed channels. So these are the channels where you can control what is put out and when. So think about it as like, these are the things we can publish and we can put out there. They might be owned. They might be rented. Podcasts, webinar series, social media. um, I would argue email campaigns, digital advertising, all those things. You have control over that. You're building your footprint through that. Then there's also the third-party channels. And that's where you tap into other existing and relevant audiences that are already built up that your ideal customer profile is hanging out. So for example, you know, like I'm coming on your podcast, I'm tapping into your audience with my expertise, right? And if you came on my podcast, it would be the reverse. You'd be coming and tapping into my audience to get your message out there. So that's just one example. There's a lot of different things you can do from a third party channel Mm -hmm. um, perspective. But when you take all those things and you build it out and you look at, okay, how do I build my digital footprint and how does, you know, building out your search search engine branding, it makes you easier to find, right? And you're showing up at places, even if they're not looking for you, 
your name mm -hmm. starts to get in front of them because you're also going into those third party channels. So even if they're not saying, okay, we're looking specifically for CaliCube right now, they might search on a topic that brings them to you, or they might go to a different resource and get exposure. Brilliant. Absolutely delightful. Yeah. And if you're standing where they're looking and they see you 66,000 times, they will end up right. Googling your brand <laughs> name. Absolutely delightful. Thank you so much, Deanna. That was wonderful. Thank you, everyone, for watching or listening. If you're listening to the podcast next week, it's how to create authentic content that's unique to your brand. That's going to be hugely interesting. I'm hugely interested to listen to Abby Wood tell me and share with you all about that. Could you possibly pass the baton, Deanna? Yes, I'm passing the baton to Abby Wood. I love my content marketers. I think that's a really important part hmm. of demand generation because quite frankly, if you don't have good content, it should be the foundation of your demand generation engine. You're not going to get very far and you're not going to get high growth if what they're reading doesn't build trust and brand awareness. Absolutely brilliant. So see everybody next week for Abby. Thank you, Deanna. You get the outro song. A quick <laughs> goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you. Cali Cube. It's all about your brand, Serp.